You are now listening to the August 7th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have The Seven Signs, A Sermon, and The God of Abraham. First, let's begin with The Seven Signs. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with The Seven Signs. Last week, we meditated on Jesus' third sign. This sign is recorded in John chapter 5. It involves the healing of a man who had been sick for 38 years. We made a point that the way Jesus healed this sick man was different from the healing of the other sick people. Typically, It was the sick people who came to Jesus and asked him to heal them. In response, Jesus healed them, saying, Your faith has healed you. But this sick man at the pond of Bethesda did not go to Jesus and did not ask Jesus to heal him. He simply did not know who Jesus is and could not have shown any faith in Jesus at all. Instead, it was Jesus who went to the sick man and commanded him to get up pick up your pallet and walk. The man was healed immediately at that very moment and picked up his pallet and walked away just as Jesus commanded. On the surface, it might have appeared a simple act of Jesus healing a sick man. However, it was not that simple. The situation got complicated because that day when this healing took place was on the Sabbath. The Pharisees had created a long list of forbidden acts on the Sabbath, and carrying an object to a private place from a public place was prominently listed. Further, carrying an object more than about a half a mile would constitute a serious offense. Flabbergasted at seeing this man carrying his pallet openly on the Sabbath, the Jews called him over and began questioning him. They immediately rendered their judgment against him because he was walking back to his house, a private place, with his pallet from the pond of Bethesda, a public place. They accused him of committing a prohibited act. When the man realized that he broke their rule regarding the Sabbath, he deflected the blame to the person who had healed him. I have done nothing wrong. He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. So the Jews demanded the man to identify who that healer was. Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? This man that became well had no idea who Jesus was and answered them that he did not know. Sometime later, Jesus went to see the healed man while he was in the house of God. There he revealed himself to the man that he is Jesus. Once the man found out, he went to the Jews and told them that it was Jesus who had healed him. Needless to say, the Jews came after Jesus for committing the offense. They started to persecute Jesus for breaking the sabbatical commandment by doing work. The work in this case would involve healing someone. Further, Jesus committed another offense by causing someone else to break the sabbatical commandment by telling that person to pick up his pallet and walk. 
Jesus then engaged the Jews in a conversation. From the content of this conversation, we learn about what sign Jesus wanted to show us. In John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus tells them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Jesus was trying to tell the Jews that both God and He were working all the time. The implication, of course, is that the work Jesus performs is not bound by the artificial rules the Jews had created about the Sabbath. The next verse, the verse 18, tells us how the Jews responded to this commandment by Jesus. From their perspective, Jesus not only trivialized their rules about the Sabbath, but he also declared being equal to God by calling God my Father. After hearing that, the Jews sought all the more to kill him for what they would consider blasphemy. There were several names reserved for God. The Jews would be careful with which name to use to call God depending on the seasons in Jewish culture. But in general, they would call God Adonai, meaning the Lord. They did call God Father on rare occasions. On those occasions, they would call him Our Father. For instance, Isaiah chapter 63, verse 16, and chapter 64, verse 8, made reference to God by stating, The Lord is Our Father. They would not call God My Father as Jesus did. As such, no one called God My Father, because calling God my Father would be tantamount to elevating oneself equal to God. In Jewish culture, the first son had the equal share as the father. Having said this, we recognize that this may not be the case in some other cultures. In some cultures, the first son is not equal to his father, and the first son is subjugated to his father as a tradition and out of respect. Many times, different cultures' religions or traditions dictate the relationship between a father and his first son. In the Jewish culture, the first son can take the place of his father and can be equal to his father. That is why the Jews sought to kill Jesus when they heard Jesus calling God, My Father. To them, Jesus not only broke the sabbatical commandment, but also committed a sin of blasphemy. Was Jesus guilty as charged by the Jews? No, by no means. By his statement, Jesus declared to them that he is indeed equal to God. What people thought of it was not important because it is the truth that Jesus is God. The Jews simply did not know and refused to accept even after they were told of the truth. In chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. This verse tells us clearly that Jesus has the authority to judge. In contrast, the Jewish people believe that the judgment was God's sovereign right. Psalms chapter 9, verse 7 and 8 says, But the Lord abides forever. He has established His throne for judgment and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. 
These verses indicate that God is the ultimate judge. Therefore, when Jesus said God the Father has given all judgment to the Son, he was in essence telling them that Jesus is God himself. Yet in John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Jesus is telling us that whoever hears Jesus' declaration that he is God, who is equal to God the Father and believes it, will have an eternal life and will not come into judgment. Jesus is also telling us that we will overcome death and be entered into life. In other words, Jesus is telling us that he is God who gives life. Lastly, in John chapter 5, verses 25 to 29, Jesus talks about the hour when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and how they will resurrect. The Old Testament talks about how God will bring back his people from death. Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, and Isaiah chapter 26, verse 9, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, and several other places talk about the resurrection. So, when Jesus talks about how he would resurrect the dead, he's telling us that he is God himself. The healing of a man who had been sick for 38 years led to a critical conversation between Jesus and the Jews. In that conversation, Jesus told them that he is the Son of God and he is equal to God. And he also revealed that he is God who will resurrect the dead. Jesus told them that he is the ultimate judge who will judge all the resurrected. He will give eternal life to those who believe in him and will give eternal judgment to those who do not. The sign of Jesus at the pond of Bethesda is telling us that Jesus is the Son of God and we will come to the resurrection of eternal life by believing in him. Doesn't this remind you of something about the reasons as to why John wrote the Gospel of John? Here is John chapter 20 verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I hope we all experience the wonderful grace of God that comes from believing in Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ. This concludes today's episode of The Signs of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Experiencing God's Faithfulness. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Well, we have followed Joseph's life. What an incredible journey thus far. I want to talk about the faithfulness of God and focus on God. We've focused a lot on Joseph, but I want to look at God and his faithfulness. Faithfulness is one of God's attributes. It's part of his character. A.W. Tozier, who's written a lot of uh, books, a lot of people read him. He says, God being who he is can now act out of character with himself. God, being who he is, cannot act out of character with himself. God is dependable. He's faithful in every circumstance all of the time. Amen? One of God's names is, we think about the names of God, and we think, oh, there's Jehovah Jireh, there's you know Jehovah Shalom, God of peace. We think of all those kind of names. You've heard of a lot of them. But there's a name that I bet you haven't heard of, and this is a name that God gives himself, and God's name is Faithful God. Say it, Faithful God. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, It says, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God. The word faithful in Hebrew is aman. Say aman, aman. What English word does that sound like? Amen. And it means amen. The Hebrew word aman has has this definition. It's defined as firm. It's established. Something's reliable. Something is lasting. It's sure. So when it says that God is faithful, aman, God is aman, it means God is sure, he's reliable, he's steadfast. The the idea behind this is certainty. God's faithfulness establishes the fact that he always keeps his word and his promises. And here we are in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 and 4, right part, early part of the song Uh, begins by praising the character of God. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe what? Greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. Here we go. A, read with me. A God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. What's the part of the song? A God of Faithfulness. The New Living Translation uh, translates it, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. How glorious is our God. He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright is he. I'm just, I just want to say, truth is put to song so people remember it. I do want to say, we say God is a faithful God. Joseph looks back on his life, and he can say, you know what? Oh, my brother sold me, but look, look at what God has done so far. Look at where God has been faithful to me. He had the advantage of looking back. Some of us have lived a lot of years, and you have decades to look back and see what God has done. You can say, yeah, God really has been faithful to me. 
Others haven't lived as, as long, but you have seen God been faithful to you. And I think the longer you live and you walk in fellowship with Christ, the, the more you have of this, uh, this ability to look back and to say a God of faithfulness, a God of love and faithfulness, you see, because you've experienced the love of God and the faithfulness of God, haven't you? God wanted the truth to stick. He wanted his people to learn about his faithfulness and to remember it. David said, I do want us to look now at some of the Psalms of David. So you go to the right in your Bible. Just keep going. Middle-ish, I keep saying of them in the Bible, the book of Psalms. Look at Psalm chapter 36, Psalm 36. You know, these are songs. The Psalms are songs that were actually set to music, sung by David or sung by the priests in the temple. Psalm 35, 36, verse 5. Let's read it. We're going to read it good and loud, okay? Good and loud. 36, verse 5. Okay, here we go. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to where? The heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. He's saying your, your love, God, is immeasurable. It goes up as far as I can see, and your faithfulness is just over the top. It's over the top. Do you notice love and faithfulness are linked? Love and faithfulness are linked. God's faithfulness means he's loving. He's loving, so it means he's faithful. Look at Psalm 86, verse 5. 15. Five is good, but I want to go to 15. Hey, let's read out loud again, okay? But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and what? Faithfulness. What goes with faithfulness? Yes, his love, his steadfast love. You are a God who is full of love and faithfulness. Now, this is being written by David, you guys, and David is being hunted and pursued by King Saul. Yeah, David had some good years. Remember David, and he's a shepherd, and, and he begins, everything is okay with Saul in the beginning, but then King Saul gets jealous, and he starts hunting David. And so David is spending a long part of his life hiding in fear of his life. But David, in spite of that, he's saying, God, you're merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and faithfulness. He's not got his eyes on the problem. He's saying, God, despite all of this, you're faithful. See, when you get to heaven someday, if you can't say, well, I see the faithfulness of God in that situation, you can in a lot of your situation. But you say, I just can't see the, the faithfulness of God in that. Trust me. As soon as you die and you instantly are in the presence of Jesus Christ, everything will become clear. You don't have to know it all. You've had enough experience with God to know that he's faithful, right? And if you don't see it all right now, you will see it in the world to come. Amen? Amen. 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 So uh, look, uh, he declares again in Psalm 117. I just want you to see these. How often, Psalm 117, God's faithfulness is declared in the scripture. 
Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. What? Praise the Lord. That's awesome. And again, not to be redundant, I can't help what the Bible is. Steadfast love and faithfulness, they're linked together. Always linked together. I haven't seen that it isn't yet. Speaking of God's faithfulness, the Bible says that his faithful love endures forever. When you get to the end of the Bible, and it it shows us Jesus, and and you see these pictures in the book of Revelation uh, of how the world's going to end, and Jesus is given three names that have to do with faithfulness. He's called in the book of Revelation, the amen. He is called the faithful witness, and he's called faithful. So Jesus, it's like this whole uh, picture, the faithfulness of God, it begins with Jesus giving the law, right? And he says, this is, I'm, I'm the faithful God. And then it ends with Jesus in the book of Revelation. And he is referred to as the amen, the faithful, uh, the faithful witness and simply the faithful. God's faithfulness has never and will never change. It's true for us and it's true for our children and their children and their children And until the Lord returns, it's true for them. His faithfulness never ends. Look at Psalm 100, verse 5. Let's read. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Love and faithfulness, tied again. But his faithfulness is through what? All generations. Psalm 89.8 says that faithfulness surrounds the Lord. Can you imagine? It's like this, this whirlwind around the Lord, just faithfulness surrounds the Lord. And then Isaiah the prophet says that faithfulness is the belt that God wears. It's, what does a belt do? Well, it, it cinches everything together and holds everything together. And God, everything about God is held together by his faithfulness. See, if he wasn't faithful, his love would mean nothing. His care would mean nothing. Because he'd be just like all those other gods of the Old Testament that, you know, they're fickle. One day they loved you, one day they didn't. One day they accepted your offerings, the next day they didn't. God said, no, I am the faithful God. My steadfast love, my Faithfulness never changes. Now, I'm emphasizing this so much because if you're going to understand the faithfulness of God, you're going to understand how to live with more peace in this world. If you don't understand it, you're going to have a hard time because God's faithfulness has never changed. When somebody cheats, it's hard to believe in, that anybody's faithful anymore because most lots, let's say, of people aren't. When somebody cheats on their spouse, we say they are what? Unfaithful. But God is faithful. It's not a promise. It's a reality. 
Our belief in the faithfulness of God doesn't make God any more faithful. It changes the way we live. You can face this day and every situation the day brings knowing that your faithful father is ruling and he's overruling in your life, okay? We can depend on God. There's several things I think about. Points of application, knowing now the faithfulness of God and believing his word and having experienced instances of God's faithfulness and his love. Because God is faithful, we can depend on him to keep his word. Joshua, at the end of his amazing life, Joshua, who led the people of Israel into the promised land, here at the end of his life, this is what he said. He says, not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. Let me read it again. At the end of his life, looking back at at the Lord and what the Lord had done, he says, not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one came true. You guys, when you stand before the Lord, you will say those words. Not one of the Lord's good promises to me failed. Every one of them was true. I'm going to say this gently. It doesn't matter how you feel right now. How you feel has nothing to do with God's faithfulness. Yay. King Solomon said, not one word has failed of all the wonderful promises he gave us through his servant Moses. King Solomon, not one of the good promises has failed. God's great, vast, he never forgets, he never fails, he never falters, he never forfeits his word. He's always true. I, because God is faithful, I can trust his word. Amen? The second thing you can do is because God is faithful, he is faithful to love you. I know that might be the <clears throat> yeah, duh, of, of our time to kill you. Of course he's faithful. Wait a second, though. You know you have times when you think, I don't know how God could love me right now. Well, only if those of you who blow it now and then, right? Some of you, oh, I never feel that way. We don't want to talk to you. <laughs> but there are times where you just like, surely what I've done has put me on the other side of this, this line of God loving me or not loving me because you're legalistic, for one thing, and you think God has saved you based on what you do. If God saved you on the basis of grace and not on the basis of works, why do you think you're kept by works? Makes no sense. If I'm saved by grace and I'm kept by works, what's grace necessary for anymore? God loves you. He is faithful to his love. He's faithful and he has steadfast love. Remember, they're linked. So God is faithful to you and he'll never stop loving you. It's just period, fact, done. No discussion. God is faithful to love you. Another thing I think about, because God is faithful, 
we can know that our sins are forgiven. First John 1, 8, 9 is a passage that every believer should know. If you're a new believer, if you're a believer that's been, you're mature in the Lord, you've got to know First John 1, 8, 9, which talks about God's faithfulness in reference to forgiveness. Verse 8 says, if anyone says that he is without sin, the, the truth is not in him. You know, duh. If you say you're not, if you're without sin, the truth is not in you. But then verse 9, it says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God will forgive my sins because he is faithful and just, faithful and just and just. Why will my sins be forgiven? Because God is what? Faithful and just. See, the very faithfulness of God that we've been talking about is tied into the forgiveness of our sins. Not one good promise. See, one of the promises Jesus makes is that he will forgive your sins. If you will come to him, he'll forgive your sins. That's a promise. Not one good promise of the Lord has ever been broken because he is faithful to his word. If we say without sin, we're liars. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You need to hear that. Somebody needs to hear that right now. You need to hear that. Because God is faithful, you can also depend on him to preserve you. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ became. God is faithful who began a work in you to fulfill it to the day, to finish it until the day that Jesus comes. How many of you have a garage full of unfinished projects? Let me see. Or a sewing room or a craft room. Come on. You know, oh, I'm going to start this. You buy all the stuff. You put all that money into what you're going to do. And then, you know, I don't know, you lose interest or whatever, and you go on to something else, or you go to Pinterest, and you see something else, you're going to, I don't know what you do. Got all these good ideas. Thankfully, God's not like us. If we were creating the world, we would have probably stopped on day five because we lost interest, right? <laughs> but God is faithful to finish what he began. The Bible says on the seventh day, God finished. He rested. It was done. He completed the work that he did in the first creation. And let me tell you guys, this is the second creation. Him remaking us. We are a new creation. In the second creation, God's going to finish what he started as well. He finished the work of salvation in you. He's going to complete it. And he keep that work going until Jesus returns and you go home to be with the Lord. You can absolutely trust that. God's never going to say, eh, I'm done with you. Put her in the garage, put him in the garage, in a shoebox, you know, cover it with a sheet, whatever. God's going to finish what he started with you. God is faithful. He's going to preserve you. And he's faithful to keep you, to keep you saved. I want you to go to the book of Jude the book of Jude, which is the next to the last book of the Bible. So we have Revelation, and then you go to the left one book, and it's the book of Jude. 
And we never say Jude 1 because there is only a one. If someone tells you to read Jude chapter 2 next week (laughs) and they ask you if you did, make sure you don't raise your hand. Jude chapter Jude 1 says, just that first verse, listen, three points. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, first of all, to those who are called, that's you, and loved by God the Father, and three, kept for Jesus Christ. This is a three-point message for some pastor or teacher here. So the first thing is you've been called by God. Okay, well, that's a whole, whole message in itself, but God has called you to himself, and that's why you're saved. Secondly, you're beloved by God the Father. Our Father God just smiling at you. He just loves you. You're his child. And thirdly, you're kept, some translation says for Jesus Christ, better translation, by Jesus Christ. The word for could be translated in by for or or with, or, but we're going to, I think the, the truth is by, kept by Jesus Christ. What's this saying? Well, it's saying you're going to go all the way to heaven because Jesus is holding on to you. He's keeping you. The word, key word here is kept. The word kept in Greek is tereo. Say that. Tereo. One more time. Tereo. Not that you need to remember it. Tereo. It means keep. And the idea here means to keep your eye on. It means to guard like a warden would guard a prisoner. It kind of goes back to the idea of having a fortress and nobody can get to you and you can't get out. It means security. You are kept by Jesus Christ because God is faithful. Remember, Jesus is called the amen, the faithful, right? Because he is faithful, you are kept by Jesus Christ, and you're not going to fall out of salvation. Nobody's going to grab you out. The devil isn't going to get you. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he says uh, that I hold you, paraphrasing, I hold you in my hand, and no one can take you out of my hand. And my Father, who is greater than you, holds him his, greater than me, holds you in my hand. No one can pull us out of that double grip. Christ is holiness. The Father is holiness. You're not going to get away. You're being kept by Jesus Christ. This is significant here in the little book of Jude, in this little letter. Jude is, is writing about oh, the terrible false doctrine and the works of demons and the devil in these last days. So it's important. He says, you're not going to fall away because you're called by God, you're beloved by God the Father, and you're kept by Jesus Christ. God's faithful to do those things. And as a result, he ends with this huge note of praise This, we call it doxology, this statement of praise. In verses 24 and 25, look at it. I'm praising God for his faithfulness. 
And I want us to read verses 24 and 25. And I think uh, we ought to just, you know, maybe you've never read it out loud before, but uh, read it as big as you can. Okay, here we go. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forever and what? Amen. Amen. God is faithful all the time. Lord, we thank you that your faithfulness lasts it endures forever, that your steadfast love and your faithfulness never change. We thank you that your faithfulness is new every morning. We thank you that we, we can count on you. When everything else fails us, we can count on your faithfulness. We've seen in Joseph's life the faithful God. And Lord, when our biographies are all written and we're looking at our lives back from heaven's vantage, we will be able to say, ah, every step of the way, God, you were faithful. You're the faithful one. We thank you for this amazing truth in Jesus' name. And everybody said,
are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from the God of Abraham. Last week, we learned how Abraham moved his tent and lived in the great trees of Mamre and built an altar to God. When Abraham first came to Canaan, he built an altar at the tree of Moreh, then left that place and lived elsewhere. This time, he entered the trees of Mamre and built an altar to God, and we learned how Abraham's attitude toward God improved and he once again walked in the Lord's vision for him. In this way, Abraham and Lot separated, and Abraham settled with the natives who lived in the forest of Mamre. This was great progress. Now, today we'll learn about what happened after he entered the forest of Mamre. In Genesis chapter 14, a well-known war occurs. Because of this war, the family of Abraham's nephew Lot was taken captive. First, I'll briefly tell you the background. In the land on the side of Babylon where Abraham settled, the four kings, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedaloamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, united and attacked the tribe of Canaan. 
At that time, the five tribes of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zohar lived in the city. To summarize Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, the tribes of Canaan gave tribute to the king of Elam for 12 years, but on the 13th year, they stopped giving tribute. We don't know what the reason is, but it could be because they were getting stronger. Since the tribute stopped, on the 14th year, the king of Elam united with surrounding nations and began conquering other nations. Since the king of Elam was powerful, he continued to have victory as he was heading towards Canaan. He defeated the tribes of Rephraes, Zuzites, Emites, Amalekites, as well as the Amorites. As the king of Elam was coming to Canaan, the five kings of the Canaan tribes of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the rest went to war against king of Elam. However, as they started to fight, the weak kings of the five tribes of Canaan began to flee. Verse 10 says, Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them and the rest fled to the hills. Therefore, the northern united army seized all the goods and food of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham's nephew Lot, who lived in Sodom, was also taken away. This is the content of verses 1-12. through 12. This was a great war. There was one person who escaped and told Abraham what happened. This is Genesis chapter 14, verses 13-16. through 16. A man who had escaped and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Verse 13 says Mamre was the brother of Eshkol and Aner. Therefore, the three brothers were settled in that region. It also says Abraham entered the land where the three brothers lived and formed an alliance with them. This is surprising because at that time, when a large family like this entered and lived in a certain region, there was a high chance that there would be conflict. It's because they might become a threat to the pre-existing group. If a family is weak, it may offer a bribe to the pre-existing group, or if it's strong, it may fight and ward off the pre-existing group. For this reason, it would not be easy for a person to enter the land where the three brothers were living and form an alliance with them. This was God's leading and God's grace. We don't know if Abraham realized this, but we know that this was God's protection. There is something more surprising. The three brothers who formed an alliance participated in Abraham's battle. We must read the Bible while keeping this part in mind and think about the situation. The battle Abraham was about to go into was a reckless battle. He was going against the northern kingdom's united army that defeated all the tribes of Canaan. Can an individual go against such a united army? How many people would agree to join Abraham who was about to fight a reckless battle? However, these three battles went to battle with him. The three brothers were helping Abraham and it shows that they trusted Abraham. 
At night, Abraham took the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He routed them and brought back Lot and all the goods. The men were all military trained. They were born in Abraham's household, meaning they were Abraham's servant. They weren't fighters, but servants who tended sheep and took care of the household. Abraham took such people to battle. It's interesting how the Bible doesn't tell us whether Abraham had victory in this battle. It simply says Abraham routed them at night. Scholars say battles did not occur at night in ancient societies because it was dark and difficult to see. Therefore, some scholars say Abraham had victory because he fought during the dark night. Abraham attacked when the enemy wasn't expecting it at all. This makes sense. The united army of the king of Elam was a victorious army that conquered all of Canaan. They probably didn't think anyone would attack them, especially at night. Abraham went through the battle and was victorious. Also, he brought everything back. How was Abraham's attitude after gaining victory in battle? Was he exhausted or worn out? Or was he puffed up by the joy of victory? Verse 17 says, After Abraham returned from defeating Kedolaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him. Abraham was probably puffed up as the king personally came out to meet him. Now let's think about this carefully. The Bible says after Abraham returned from defeating the kings, the king of Sodom came out to meet him. However, prior to the king of Sodom arriving, there was another who first spoke to Abraham. His name is Melchizedek. The Bible doesn't tell us clearly who Melchizedek was. The name Melchizedek means my king is righteousness. Genesis chapter 14 verse 18 says he was the king of Salem. As we well know, Salem means peace. So if we translate King of Salem Melchizedek, it means King of Peace, my King is Righteousness. There are some who say they think of Jesus, who is the King of Peace and the King of Righteousness. However, Melchizedek is an unknown person to us. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament also says this. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 3 says, Melchizedek was without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, and resembled the Son of God. God's Son is Jesus. Melchizedek is not Jesus, but he resembled him. The important thing is that after Abraham returned from defeating the kings, the king of Sodom came out to meet him, but Melchizedek appeared and spoke to Abraham. Here is Genesis chapter 14, verses 19 through 20. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek first called upon God. He gave a blessing by saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth. Then he said, And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Until now, we learned how unbelievably reckless Abraham's battle was. It says Abraham won. Abraham might have thought it was good that he attacked them at night when they were caught off guard. Actually, I'm sure Abraham thought this way because I think Melchizedek appeared to correct Abraham's thought. He probably said, Abraham, 
You didn't have victory because you fought the battle well or because you attacked when they were caught off guard. The reason you had victory was because God gave them into your hand. Therefore, don't be proud, but praise God Most High who gave your enemy into your hand. The Bible says Abraham gave a tenth of everything he gained to Melchizedek. Why did Abraham give a tenth of everything to Melchizedek? We'll continue to learn about this next week. Goodbye!
we are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.